are looking at the 21st century. And all myths that are uh, authentic maintain a kind of dreamlike, surreal quality. Computers are taking over now. By the year 2001, man will travel about in pneumatic papal tubes. It's time once again to step into the future. If you ever was a devil bought that in harness, better burn your man. I hear you, mama. Business time! It's business time! Big shout out to J.D. Coonigan, a listener who read The Prophet's Wife because I won't shut up about it on this podcast, and he reviewed it on Goodreads and Amazon. And I am extremely grateful for the time you took to read my redheaded stepchild, J.D., and to share your thoughts. J.D. is an author himself and writes tight, pacey superhero thrillers with comic book-inspired storytelling. He's got a number of books out, including the Jill Anderson series, and though I haven't read any yet, they all have great reviews, so if you're a fan of superhero fiction with kick-ass female leads, go and check out J.D. Coonigan's books. And if you're a creator who has reviewed one of my books or my podcast online, please let me know and I'll give you a shout-out too. The audience for this podcast is not huge yet, but it's growing steadily, I'm pleased to say. And any boost I can give to my listeners to help them reach their own creative goals, I am very happy to provide. Okay, on with the show. Okay, friends. I know I said I was going to take you on a road trip with me, and I did record while I was on the road for two weeks, traveling to and from this big conference down in San Antonio. But the other day I was listening to my recordings, and it was boring. Like, really, really boring. Not good podcast fodder, I am sorry to say. So although I'm glad I recorded my thoughts for myself to reference later, I'm also glad that I realized that you should not be subjected to my road trip nonsense. And that means I spent 150 bucks on a portable voice recorder that I might never use again. (sighs) This is Future Saint of a New Era. I'm Libby Grant. One way to study people is through reading. In the books and stories we read, we can learn about people and ourselves. In novels especially, we can begin to understand why people behave as they do. The conference itself was not boring though. In fact, I had a really great time. It might even be one of the highlights of my career so far, no joke. I was asked to be a guest speaker and to deliver a keynote speech that kicked off the whole weekend for everyone. So that was obviously a pretty huge honor. And I'm so grateful to the Historical Novel Society of North America, the board, um, for giving me the opportunity to do it and inviting me. Oh my god, like, I cherish the memory for sure. I was a little surprised to be asked, though, because most conferences are kind of set up to uh, uphold the existing model of publishing, which means there are corporate publishers at the top and agents who facilitate their work, and then there are the authors on the bottom in this place of decidedly less power and influence. 
And that's just kind of the way it is in publishing. George Eliot was a woman who lived in Victorian England. We can imagine her in her study. Marion Evans, for that was her real name, wrote book reviews and helped edit various London magazines. She also wrote novels under the pen name of George Eliot. In a letter to a friend, she wrote, I am writing a story which came across my other plans by a sudden inspiration. It is extremely unlike the popular stories going. It is a story of old-fashioned village life. But my career has managed to sidestep that entire model, and I've built something that's really unique and rarely seen among novelists. So I was surprised to be asked to deliver a keynote speech at a conference of this size and with this level of prestige, but also really glad for the opportunity because I think it's tremendously important for newer writers to see examples of non-traditional success. Because so often, unless those non-traditional successes are pointed out to you, they're kind of invisible, and it's really easy to fall into a false belief that there's only one way to achieve success in any creative profession. When the reality is, your routes to success are really only limited by your own ingenuity and willingness to put in the work. Knowing something about the author, being able to picture the setting, these help us understand a novel, any novel. Thus, by visualizing the coast of Maine, we may better enjoy the novel Mary Peters by Mary Ellen Chase. As I was working on my speech and the other materials I was going to present at this conference, I really thought hard about what I wanted to accomplish. Like what I wanted this conference to be for me, what I wanted to take away from it. And I decided I wanted to spread the idea that we as artists are the masters of our own destiny that we're the ones who define success for ourselves, and we are the ones who create our own paths to our own goals. And then no matter who tells you otherwise, no matter what vested interest someone else may have in convincing you otherwise, your path is always your own to find, to forge, and to follow. Now that we understand something about the author, the setting, the characters, we are better able to enjoy this tense, exciting moment in the novel. So I had my speech all written up along those lines. Great. I felt as ready to go as I could be. But just as the conference got rolling, I had this little nagging voice like way in the back of my head that the message wasn't going to spread far enough or effectively enough the way I currently had set myself up to spread it. And that if I wanted to feel like my personal goal for the conference was met, that goal of like really making writers feel the truth of their own power, I still needed to keep my eyes open for the right opportunity. And when the opportunity presented itself, I needed to act. And then you may tell about one exciting event in the story, so that others will want to read the novel and meet the people you have come to know. My first day at the conference, a Thursday, I was teaching two different three-hour-long workshops, one on outlining and the other on like basically how to evaluate the market from a writer's perspective. I'd taken a long train journey to get there and I was still not very well rested. And by the end of my first three hour workshop, I was dragging pretty bad. And I still had another workshop ahead and my keynote speech too. So it was a lot. I was about to head back up to my room and just like take a nap for a couple hours before my next workshop started. But this woman approached me, an older woman, like maybe 20 years older than me. And she had a kind of timid demeanor and she said, 
This might be a little forward of me, but do you want to go get lunch? And honestly, my first instinct was to politely decline because I was so fucking tired. I really needed rest. But I also needed some food, and I have this funny habit of saying yes to unusual offers, to things that most other people would probably say no to. I found that you can find surprising opportunities in moments like those, and after all, pretty much my entire career has been built on the principle that I will walk through any door that opens in front of me, even if it doesn't look like the doors I expected to open, even if it is scarcely recognizable as an open door at all. So I said yes, let's go grab lunch. Yes, by picturing in our minds the persons described by the author, we help make a story come to life. This woman's name was Lori. We found a little taco place along the river walk and ordered and we got to talking. Lori was a mother with grown children and she'd recently left her lifelong career in the medical support field because all she'd ever really wanted to do with her life was to write but she'd always suppress that urge because she'd always heard from other people that, you know, it wasn't a reasonable or a sensible goal, or writing's too risky, you know, all that shit. But she also got no fulfillment after an entire adult life working in a very sensible and reasonable professional field either. And it was actually her grown daughter who convinced her that it was finally time to dedicate herself to this thing she felt was her true calling, to writing. Lori was getting a little emotional while she told me all this. She controlled herself very well, like better than I can control myself for sure. But I could still feel the intensity of her feelings as she told me about this lifelong desire to write and how she had denied that urge for so long, but, you know, it never went away. And the sense of failure over not writing never got any easier for her to bear. I asked her how far along she was with her first book and she admitted she hadn't even started writing it yet. She was afraid now of doing it and she hadn't been able to start at all. Though she had the idea for her book all figured out, like the story was there, she just hadn't committed it to words yet. And I saw my opportunity there, for some reason. I don't know why, but I knew that Lori was the vessel I'd been waiting for to spread the most critical information I knew how to spread, the most useful information for any writer at that conference, and to make it spread as widely as possible. While she was talking, I asked her for a pen. She pulled one out of her purse and handed it to me, and then I asked her for her name tag. And she looked a little puzzled, but she took off her lanyard and passed it to me, and I slipped the paper tag out of the plastic holder, and I told her to keep talking. While she spoke, I wrote the following words on the back of her name tag. It's the motto I've used as my guiding light for many years now. It's a Latin slogan. Ot inveniem viem ot faciem. I slid Lori's name tag back into its holder and passed it and her pen across the table, she looked at it, a little confused, and I said, You've got some googling to do later today. And then we went on with our lunch, and after that, I taught my second workshop, and after that, I gave my keynote speech, and then I finally, gratefully, went to bed. So it is we approach novels. Finding out about the author. Imagining the setting. Meeting the characters. And picturing them. This takes time, and most novels are not read all at once. When we stop, we should think back over what we have read before we put the book aside. The publishing industry is a funny place. It's a funny environment. Sometimes if you want to be effective in this kind of environment, you have to do your work subtly. My husband and I, we always joke, so the, the blossoms are just coming out right now. And so as soon as we see a petal on the um, ground, we just say, oh my God, 
summer's over. It's winter again. <laughs> like we're always anticipating the end before it's even begun. So I'm constantly living in a state of winter, it feels like. This is Jody Warshaw, a freelance developmental editor and one of my former editors at Lake Union. Jody was actually the one who discovered me as a self-published author and got the other editors at Lake Union to read my novel Tidewater, which led to their offering me a contract, and the rest is history, kind of. I am forever indebted to Jody for her open-mindedness and her willingness to take a chance on an indie author, and for seeing the potential in my work. Jody continued working with Lake Union for several years, but recently she struck out on her own to concentrate on the parts of editing she most enjoys, namely helping authors develop stronger stories and characters, which she is excellent at. After a long professional separation from Jody, I was delighted to work with her again this year when she was assigned as the dev editor on my novel October in the Earth, which comes out this fall from Lake Union and which you can pre-order now on Amazon if you are so inclined. It's about lady train hobos during the Great Depression, so you know it's gonna be fun. When Jody and I chatted earlier this spring, we got into the ins and outs of the publishing industry, its good sides and its bad sides, and it was an enlightening conversation to have with someone who's seen a totally different side of the business than I've seen. Listen in and see what you think. Sounds like it should be the title of a novel. <laughs> indeed, indeed. A State of Winter. Uh-huh. Uh. So you recently switched from uh, working with a publishing imprint as an editor, as, a, as an acquisitions editor, and now you're doing freelance developmental editing. Um, has it been busy since you switched over? Yes, and I am so chuffed. I mean, I had no idea when I left what my life was going to hold, and I thought that it would just be crickets. Like, honestly, I thought that I would be twiddling my thumbs. I thought I'd be cleaning out drawers. I was going to take a ceramics class. I was going to <laughs> scan it, all my old photos, get in touch with people I haven't been in touch with. And I had also really wanted to take a chunk of time off just to sort of, as I say, off gas after working in corporate publishing for my entire career. Yeah. Um, but I was too afraid to do that. I was afraid that there wouldn't be any work that would come in. So as soon as I got a job, which was a freelance job, which was kind of before I left, I took it and I just started working and, um, it's been great. It's been really good. But, um, the hard thing is, is, um, just managing my own time because I tend to be one of those workhorses. And I think that's why I did survive so long in traditional publishing is because I was the girl that would be like, all right, I'm going to do it. You want me to take on 24 books? I will do it. Oh my God. And so it's hard for me to stop myself. Um, And so I've had to kind of um, force myself not to take on as much as I have. And the other thing that I will say is that even though I bitched all the time about all of the random stuff I had to do in my traditional acquisitions editor job at Lake Union, I kind of miss it. I mean, there's something, you know, I would always say, oh, I just want to get closer to the content and I just really want to drill down and work really hard on just like one thing. And there is a lot to be said for that. It's very gratifying, but I kind of miss ticking all the boxes and I kind of miss like the hustle and bustle and And it's kind of, I mean, you're a writer, so you know how it is. It's kind of lonely. Yeah. I mean, it's awesome because I don't have to answer to anybody but myself. And I don't have to deal with stupid office politics and all the (laughs) asinine stuff that goes along with that. And I don't have to talk to people I don't want to talk to at the water cooler. Like all of those little things are great. But it kind of like the transitioning from doing a million things all at once on a million different books to just focusing on one manuscript at a time has been a major shift for me. Um, 
and there's parts of it, like I said, that I love and parts of it where I'm like, oh my God, can like, I please get an email? Like now I want emails. Now I'm like obsessively looking at my emails. I used to get hundreds a day and now I'm like, what? It's an hour's gone by and like I've only gotten an advertisement from J. Crew. Like what is going on? <laughs> I have days like that for sure where I'm just like refreshing my email. I'm like, come on, someone yeah. has to send me something. There's got to be yeah. something interesting going on. Nothing. Well, you get all those like little dopamine hits each time you like finish a task or respond to an email and you feel so needed because I had so many authors that needed, which was really hard because I was always feeling like I was letting somebody down on some level. Yeah. Um, but there's something really nice about being needed. And when they're like, oh, thank you. You're a lifesaver. Like I miss all of that positive stroking that I used to get. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. I mean, authors are still happy um, to work with me, but it's just instead of like a million Thank you, Jodies. You're great. There's like one or two. <laughs> it's not the same, right? Because I mean, no. the way a de- developmental edit works for people who might be listening to this who aren't at that point yet in their writing careers or, you know, who work. I have a lot of listeners from like a variety of different creative endeavors. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're like an artist or a musician, this is a totally different world for you. But a developmental edit is where you take, you know, an author writes a manuscript which is an unpublished book, basically. That's what we call it in the biz, a manuscript. Um, They send the manuscript off to a developmental editor. I'm shortening this a little bit, but more or less this is how it works. And the dev editor looks through it and like kind of reads it a couple of times and makes notes on like, these are where your problems are. These are the questions I have that aren't being answered clearly. Like, what's Mm -hmm. this character doing? This doesn't make sense. And they kind of help you get a bigger picture to put it all together in a way that makes more sense and is much more satisfying Mm -hmm. to read. So yeah, you have to read through a manuscript probably a couple times, make all your yep. notes, write up a letter mm-hmm. that's like, here's here's where you need to focus, send it back uh-huh. to the writer. And then the writer goes through that, makes those changes and sends it back to you again. And you do yep. this back and forth usually a couple times. Mm-hmm. So that's like, yeah, if you're only working on maybe what, two or three books a week now or a, a month now, instead of like 24 yeah, books a year. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Like that's a, that's not a lot of, and, and you're not, so an acquisitions editor is a little bit, the role Jody had before, a little bit different because you're kind of more like a project manager for a book that's mm-hmm. being published. Like you're coordinating all of the other kinds of editors that are going to work on it. You're figuring mm-hmm. out what the cover design is going to be like and helping to guide the mm-hmm. cover designer, like all these other tasks that go into it. And yeah. you're juggling the writer's emotions. Like writers are the, oh, yes. writers are the most annoying people in the world. <laughs> well, I've married a writer, so I was um, I've seen it from both sides. And so like he will bitch like nobody's business about his editor, and I'll be like, Oh yeah, well get this. And then I'll tell him some horror story about an author. And oh my god, I would never want to edit my husband because he is such a pain in the ass. Um, and he knows it, he knows it. Uh, so he fully owns it, but, um, but yeah, what, what Libby said is true. It's like when I was an acquisitions editor, I was doing so many different things all at once and, you know, everything from negotiating the contract to, um, working with marketing to position the book and cover design and this and that. But meanwhile, you're also expected to be really intimate with the content. And that's where I felt like I was always falling down. Um, because I, there's just not enough time to read and reread and reread. So now as a dev editor, you know, when I worked with you on your uh, most recent one, like, I think I've read that book four times now. Um, I'm sorry. And, <laughs> I love that book. Um, but it's, it's just a different, it's a different speed and it's a different role. You can really dig deep and it feels really gratifying, but at the same time, 
it is so subjective. Like, who am I to say that, like, oh, I feel like the theme, you know, kind of fades away here. And it's hard not to insert yourself with a writer. Um, and that's where the balance really comes in is, like, you try really hard to uh, let the author maintain their vision and their voice and not get in there and muck things up because it is not my book. Yeah. And I am just, I'm like the doula. I'm just like helping the author birth their book. So I just want to be there to ease the way um, and, and make the book the best it can be, but also stay true to the author's vision. And I have to say, it's been really freeing not working for a publisher who has a certain vision in mind. You know, the last um, imprint that I worked for was very like, we would change course all the time. Like, you know, one, like in the beginning of the year, we're going fully commercial, only commercial is all we want. And then we would change course and be like, no, we're going to go upmarket literary. And then, you know, it's just like having to acquire based on what you think is going to work 18 months down the road. And then meanwhile, what you acquired when we were acquiring super commercial, marketing is no longer interested in because, oh, no, 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 we're going upmarket literary. And so it's just, I don't have to worry about any of that anymore, which is so freeing. I can just like, let the book be what it wants to be and not try and like, force it into something that it's not but so that I've I've felt so relieved to not have to worry about being the um conduit between the publisher and the author because that's what an editor and acquisitions editor really is like you are the one that is making things okay for everyone so then <laughs> it's really hard but I'm a middle child so I was like I was born to just like be the the negotiator and and, you know, I'm really good at being on anybody's side, but it's really exhausting. It's really exhausting. Okay, guys, it's me, Libby, obviously. Um, something happened with my side of the audio file and I lost the rest of the things I said to Jody. So I am recreating my half of the conversation now and I hope it comes off as kind of natural. But if it doesn't, just like pretend I'm a robot or something. I mean, most of the time I pretend I'm a robot anyway. Jody still had a lot of interesting things to say, even with my side cutting out, so keep calm and carry on. Beep boop, beep boop. And people get so hung up on cover design. Oh my god, it's like the most high stakes moment in the whole production process for a book. Everybody involved has strong feelings about the cover, and usually I have to say, after having had a lot of experience as an indie author and having done some cover design for hire myself, the author is usually very wrong about what makes a good cover, or at least like what's important to include on a cover. I know it's so tempting. I can't tell you how many times I would just be like, oh, I don't care if like this woman on the cover is like, if her silhouette looks a little more 1928 than 1934. And like, I just can't like, I'm just done. Um, so yeah, those little details that have gone by the wayside and that all of the negotiation and making nice and oh my God, but I have to say the worst is breaking up with an author. I don't have to do that anymore too, because I mean, that's the brutal part of publishing is that it is a business and no matter how much an editor or publisher will be like, I love your book. I, I, you know, this is, and they do love the book, but it's not like they have to do what's best for the bottom line. And that is the br brutal truth of publishing is that it is not a labor of love for anybody. The author maybe, And if the author is, I mean, the other thing that's so frustrating is like, what authors do you know? There's very few who have the luxury of time to just spend all of their time working on a manuscript and not expecting to get any money in return because you do not make money publishing books. I'm here to tell you, unless you're 
like the like publisher's chosen cream of the crop. And that has nothing to do. And I hope you'll edit this out if I'm saying too much. Um, that has nothing to do with talent a lot of times. It has nothing to do with talent. It has to do with who is this person? Can we market them? Um, are they mediagenic? Um, do they have more books? I mean, I pity the poor author who's writing a memoir at age 80 because there's no career to build on for that. You know, So the author who's like, oh, here's my first book, it's debut, I'm 80. I hate to say it, but we're gonna we're gonna look at like well does this author have another book in them like how are we gonna build on the audience that we have generated for their first book if they don't have a second book yeah that's true it has to come down to bottom line decisions for publishers because it is a business and that's why I'm particularly grateful to be working as an author right now when we have more options on where we can take our books and how we can get them out into the world so we're not like at the mercy of those purely business decisions that publishers are forced to make. And I'm sure it's kind of heartbreaking for acquisitions editors to have a book and an author they genuinely love, but to have to say, like, look, we just don't see a way to sell this with our business model. It's heartbreaking, but it's true. And I had to, I had to remind myself that a lot, but it's really hard when you are in, when you do love content and you do love story and you do see the value of um, what a writer has to say, but you know that your publisher is not going to find it marketable. I have to say that some of my favorite books that I acquired um, ever are the ones that sold the fewest copies. Yeah, that does not surprise me at all, because I found as a reader and as a writer that it's often the quietest books that you hear very little about that wow you the most. And the cold hard fact is that originality seldom makes a lot of money. I talk to newer writers all the time, and especially when they're querying, which for my listeners who don't know what querying is, that's part of the publication process where you're like trying to find either a publisher or an agent who can sell your book to a publisher. So you're basically sending out an email to try to tempt the target of your query into requesting the manuscript to read. So especially when new authors are querying, they tend to be very concerned with how can I make my book seem as original as possible? When really, at that stage, the approach you want to take is, how can I make my book look as much like a safe bet as possible? Like, how can I make it feel exactly like all these other very successful books so a publisher will have confidence in its financial feasibility? Yeah, I mean, and I am always very, you know, authors would often come to me and be like, okay, what's hot? What should I write? What should I write? And I made the mistake a few times of being really prescriptive and being like, okay, here's what I think. I think it's going to be all about open marriage and suburbia. And so, you know, let's like, can you come up with like a neighborhood, you know, tale that's like soap opera and has some dark elements, but also some humor. And then I would just like get really way too hands-on and prescriptive because I would think that I knew what was going to be happening in the marketplace. And the writers would be like, thank you so much. This is awesome. And then they would go to write it. And because it wasn't their story, it just never worked out. And so that's what I love about Ragged Edge of Night is because you found a story that was actually in your family and you had a connection to it. And it wasn't, you weren't just writing to the marketplace, which I think is a huge mistake. Um, If you want your writing to have real feeling and readers to really connect to it, I think it has to be a story you want to tell. So I always caution writers like, don't, don't just write to the marketplace. Yes, you know, World War II is huge, but that does not mean you need to write about it. Like, you have to expect, the more you deviate from the commercial center, the smaller your audience is going to be. Because by definition, if you're appealing to the most common denominator, you're going to have way more potential readers for your work. 
And publishers take note of that, especially big corporate publishers that need to maximize profits from every book in order to keep their bloated and overly complex business model running. But then on the other hand, corporate publishing moves very slowly, like at a ridiculously slow pace compared to what an indie author can do. So even while you're trying to find this commercial center that can give you a much better shot at financial stability, the target keeps moving because the trends keep changing. So you could write a book that's like dead on perfect for the trends right now, but 18 to 24 months from now, when it gets through production and hits shelves, the trends might have moved on and then you're behind the curve. So it's kind of maddening and like almost a futility in many cases to try to chase that commercial ideal. In a lot of ways, you have to just write the books you really want to write and hope and pray that eventually one of them's going to strike the market at just the right time to make you a bestseller. Like that's what happened with Blackbird. It happened to come out right before the pandemic and it was exactly the kind of book people wanted and needed to read during the first year of the pandemic. That was nothing I could control for. It was just pure luck. And too often, authors don't want to acknowledge just how important random luck is for success in this field. Yeah, and honing the craft and, and you know, like what I admire about your career, Libby, is that you have figured out how to, I mean, you have different personas or different voices that you can use and you know uh, who your audience is and who you're aiming that particular book for. That's true. I really do have a specific audience in mind for everything I write, and that audience totally varies depending on which pen name I'm working with. Like, these are separate creative pursuits in my mind when I'm working with my various pen names. That's why I have multiple pen names, so I can broaden my reach and, like, keep several irons in the fire. And so my question to you is, when you first started, did you have any, like, the first book you wrote, or actually the first book you published... Um, Did you have high hopes of making a living off of it? Well, making a living from fiction was always my goal. Like, that was what I was aiming for. But I think I had pretty realistic expectations from the start. Like, I didn't think it was going to happen in one book. I expected to write several novels before I reached the point where I could quit my day job and do this full time. And I think it did take, like, seven or eight novels out before I was earning enough to support myself. Or, like my half of the household income since Paul and I were engaged and living together at the time. So no, I didn't think my first novel was going to get me there, but I also had the mindset that I was going to get there at some point and I wasn't going to accept anything else as my long-term reality. No, and you are such a success story. And I feel, you know, I worry that when writers come to me and they say, you know, what do you think? Should I, should I try to get this published? Should I this? Should I that? Should I be, even be a writer? I feel like I can be really discouraging. And I feel like that is not, I just, I'm, I'm so realistic after having been in the biz for 25 plus years about how difficult it is to make a living. It's not impossible at all, but so much is, um, there's a lot based on your skill, but then there's also timing. There's also you know, your willingness to get out there and hustle. And it takes a lot. Um, so I, I sometimes worry that I can just be such a Debbie Downer when people talk to me, I'm like, ah, oh, don't do it. But that's not, I mean, I, I guess, you know, I just, I'm always wary of somebody thinking they can just support themselves on writing. Because like I said, I married a writer and I, as an editor, which is not the most lucrative job in the world, am the breadwinner in our family. <laughs> I have seen the suffering firsthand, but I do find it, you know, what I do like is that more and more, um, you know, people can just get their stuff out there 
without having to go through all of the gatekeepers. And I think you've been really successful in figuring out all the different avenues there are to publish. It does not just have to be through a traditional publisher. I mean, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of benefit and there's a lot of, um, I mean, it's really good for the ego to get published by a traditional house and then seeing your print books and bookstore windows. Like who doesn't want that? Uh, I don't even have that. It would be nice, but unfortunately, as you know, Lake Union gets pretty harshly discriminated against by the majority of bookstores and like in rewards and review outlets and all that. So it's kind of weird and surreal, like being able to support myself as well as I do just from my writing while simultaneously being an absolute nobody within the broader context of the industry. Like no one knows who I am. I might as well be a ghost in this industry. (laughs) And yet most writers would murder their own grandmas to have my career. And I'm not complaining. I would much rather have the financial success and be totally invisible like I am than have it be the other way around. But there is, like, a bit of cognitive dissonance here. Like, it's weird. It's weird to be an author who has half a million readers out there, and yet you will never find a single one of my books in a bookstore, and no reviewer or book talk influencer or whoever else is making the gears turn in this industry at the moment has ever heard of Olivia Hawker, and they probably never will. And then the one time I did get a book out with a publisher who does have that reach and that distribution, they bungled literally every single aspect of my book, and it just tanked harder than anything has ever tanked before. That was pretty brutal to see what a load of shit the big five can be. Like even for an author who's already got half a million readers and should, in theory, be a priority for any publisher to promote or at least to make sure their book ends up on the fiction shelves instead of the non-fiction shelves, which is where it currently lives. Oh my God, that was so heartbreaking. I'm so sorry that happened to you. Yeah. I'm sorry too. I feel like I'm going to have a lot to say about that whole situation at the HNS conference this summer. Yes, and you're a featured speaker, right? I am. It's such a nice honor. I'm really excited about it. I'm so excited. I so wish I was going to be there. I know. HNS North America is a consistently awesome conference every time. But I think a lot of people are going to be maybe kind of pissed at some of the things I plan to say this year. Well, not pissed. Maybe just upset. Shocked. Because I'm going to be giving this talk called Storytelling in the 21st Century, where I will begin the whole presentation by asking the audience when the book began to die. Because I really do think that books as objects are dinosaurs at this point. Like, our technology has moved on and it's time to let books go. Do you think it's the the novel as a form is a dinosaur? Or do you think it's like the actual physical book? Are you talking about both? Oh, I definitely mean physical books. The book as an object, like dead trees bound between two covers. That's just kind of ridiculously old-fashioned at this point and even kind of cumbersome now. And like, I get it. I love books as objects too. I adore books. But you know, I also have a lot of albums on vinyl records and I love listening to them. But this is clearly no longer the way we listen to music anymore. Like on average, when you look at society as a whole. And I think books are kind of already in the same realm as vinyl. Like they're just prized objects for hardcore enthusiasts of the art form to display in their homes and to enjoy in a kind of sensualist way. And meanwhile, most people who enjoy novels or nonfiction or whatever are doing their reading on e-readers or they're listening to audiobooks or to podcasts or they're playing YouTube videos. This is the way we interact with story now. And I just don't think there's any point in trying to force some other reality on ourselves. And I do also think as a society, we're getting a little less tolerance or maybe preference is a better word, a little less preference for long form storytelling. 
But I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, story has always been with us and it always will be with us. It's literally a huge part of what makes us human. But the ways we convey story to one another have always changed over the course of our entire history and they're still changing. So if our forms get shorter, I think that's fine. You can still pack all the things that are important about story into shorter forms. It just takes a different set of skills. I like it. I mean, just looking at my 13-year-old son and, um, you know, he'll read novels, but he, like, it's all about short bits of content for him. And, you know, as, as his bookish um, mother, I'm like, well, he needs to, he needs to appreciate long form um, writing. And I get all up, upset because he's just like reading headlines and little listicles. And I want him to read long form journalism and this and that, but I feel like we can't control this. Like this is just where the world is going. So we need to adapt to this new model. And instead of trying to wrench people back into what we think is the appropriate way to digest content. Right. And that's why I think corporate publishing as a business model is ultimately kind of doomed unless it cuts out all the antics with trying to artificially prop up print sales and suppress ebook sales via pricing shenanigans and all the stuff they do. Like, the asteroid has already hit Earth, my dudes. You're going extinct unless you can adapt your business model to suit the demands of 21st century consumers of story. It's ebooks and audio content. Those are the only formats that really matter now, and print books are the same as vinyl records. They are collector's objects that will only appeal to a very small, very niche market. So are you going to say this at Historical Novel Society? Oh yeah, I'm going to say all of this. Like, what have I got to lose? What are the big five going to do? Not publish me? Like they've been not publishing me all along? Or bungle another one of my books? Big deal. You know, <laughs> like, I've gotten as far as I have in this industry without them, and I'm not afraid of pissing them off at this point. They've got absolutely no power over me, which I've come to understand is really unique and kind of a fun place to be for an author who's as successful as I am. Like, cheers, man. They can't touch me. They can't ruin me. They've got no say in anything I do, and I fucking love that. Though I'm not gonna lie, I'd love to have a fair shot at the awards and a little more recognition. I would love that. But like I said before, I'll take the weird situation I've managed to create for myself any day over the alternative of being yoked to that absolute absurdity that goes on within the industry. Oh, it's a shame. And it's that's where it's just like, it's such a cruel industry. I mean, it's just, and especially because it attracts people who are not necessarily like, oh, Lulu, look at me, look at me. It attracts a lot of people that are very thoughtful, very smart, um, and very sort of, not navel-gazing, but just like, so to, and I think there's so much expectation right now that you're going to just like get out there and do your song and dance and, you know, jazz hands, me, 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 me. Um, and I, I hate that that is one of the, the publishers are like, whoa, what sort of platform does she have? And, you know, there's all of these expectations that you will deliver yourself to the publisher as not only a very talented writer who has her finger on the pulse of what the marketplace wants, but also somebody who can get out there and on their own dime, usually, uh, promote the heck out of a book. Yeah, that has never sat right with me, that authors who are receiving the least money of everyone involved in the sale of that book are often expected to market the book on their own dime? Like, excuse me? If you're taking 75 to 90% of each sale, depending on what format you're looking at, you better be bringing something of real value to the table. And that something of real value can only rationally be marketing and distribution for a publisher. It just doesn't make sense to expect the person with the least money 
and reach to do the expensive work of marketing. It's insane. That's not how a smart business operates. And, and I think that's one of the primary strengths in indie publishing and self-publishing. If you're going to have to pay for marketing yourself, you might as well get 100% of each ebook sale, not 25%. And you might as well free yourself up to try some outside-the-box thinking about marketing itself, about publicity, about making a name for yourself. Hell, I think writers should be thinking beyond books right now. How can you get your stories to audiences that have nothing to do with books or e-readers? That's where I think the immediate future of storytelling lies, and I think smart writers will be moving away from books right now and moving into these other media and entertainment spaces that are not yet really colonized by writers of fiction, by novelists. No, and you're unafraid to try new things, and I think that that is really admirable, that you're willing to put yourself out there and just be like, oh, I'm just going to try this, see what happens. Yeah, What's the worst that can happen when you try something new or something totally out there? It might not work. Big deal. That's not the end of the world. Like, you learn from that experience and then you try something else. That's why I love conferences so much and why I'm looking forward to finally getting back to HNS after all the pandemic years. I feel like I get a lot of really great ideas from my fellow authors about new things to try, whether it's like a new slant on the genre or new craft technique or totally new way of bringing my stories to an audience. And for whatever reason... That synergy tends to happen so much more easily at in-person conferences than any other way. There's just, like, such a different energy at a writing conference. The creativity and the motivation are, like, palpable. It rubs off on you. Of course, most writers' conferences do still tend to be dominated by and geared towards the Big Five model, so you run into a lot of stumbling blocks in those areas, too. I remember the first AWP I went to. It was, like... It was in April in Minneapolis and it snowed like nobody's business. And I was with Lake Union and Lake Union was just trying to like sort of bust out and be like, hey, here we are. You know, do you want to work with us? And of course, being part of Amazon Publishing, nobody wanted to work with us. And then showing up at AWP and my uh, badge said, you know, Jody Warshaw, Amazon Publishing. And I was just like constantly pulling my cardigan over my... <laughs> my badge because I was like all of these people were so hoity-toity and I knew that they would just be like what are you doing here you interloper like I just I felt like such a imposter um so I don't know I, I don't know where I'm going with the story aside from the fact that publishing can be very snooty and very exclusive and you know it's I, I really appreciate what you're saying about like figure out what you have and just double down on that and don't try and like, oh, I must go to Iowa and get my MFA before I can even try to publish something. One of the things I love so much about working with Lake Union, though, despite the challenges with distribution and getting trade reviews and awards and all that, it's a publishing company that's very focused on getting results. Like, it knows how to make books sell, and it builds big reader bases for authors. By putting good books into eager readers' hands, right? Like, the only way that really matters... Mostly ebooks and audiobooks, noto bene, which is fine by me, but there isn't that exclusive, narrowly focused vibe there like you see at the Big Five. And I know not every author who's worked with Lake Union has had the same experience as I have, but from my perspective, there's a genuine culture of, of giving a shit at Lake Union, of like caring about the quality of the work that's put out there, and caring that an author's vision is honored as much as it possibly can be. That's just conspicuously missing from the other traditional publishers I've worked with. Lake Union just has a whole lot more respect for the art form than any other publisher does. And I will say that, um, you know, when I first started there, like I came over from um, a mid-sized publishing house. I was at Chronicle Books for 12 years. And then I was recruited when Amazon Publishing started their publishing house. Um, 
and because they needed people who had actually worked in books because all of their people had just been in tech or on the retail side. So I show up and they, you know, they kept on saying author happiness, author happiness, it's all about customer service and the authors are customer. And I kind of rolled my eyes. I was like, yeah, that sounds great, you know. But it actually, I mean, they do care deeply about the author's experience. And, and, and I will stand by that until the day I die. Like they want what's best for the author and they want their authors to be able to make a living. Yes, and that definitely comes through. And I feel like it came through from the beginning for me. I've been working with Lake Union since, uh, let's see, since 2014 was when you acquired Tidewater, right? Like in the fall, it was like October or something. You were one of my first acquisitions. Um, oh, was I? Oh, I didn't know that. You were early, yeah. But um, And I remember reading Libby's book on KDP and just being like, oh my God, I love this book. And it was so wonderful to be able to reach out to you and just say, hey, I love your book. Do you want us to get behind it? Oh, that's so nice to hear. I really poured a lot into writing Tidewater. And by that time, I was like dead set on self-publishing forever. I was totally jaded by my experiences with the traditional model and I just wanted nothing to do with it. And I felt like my only hope for Tidewater was to make it the very best book I could make it and then hope that word of mouth would slowly take off eventually over like years and I might get the reputation as a good writer. And I think I published it in like August of that year. And yeah, a couple months later, there was this email in my inbox from you asking to acquire it. And I said no at first. I was like, uh, I don't know, like not super keen on traditional publishing. But you stuck with it and eventually you convinced me to give it a go. And I'm so, so glad that you did. And now here we are working on another project together after all these years. It's so nice to get to work with you as my editor again. I know we've come full circle. So tell me what, um, have you been reading anything that's good? I'm in such a rut right now. Yeah, I've just discovered that Lydia Millet exists or is it Lydia Millet? I'm wondering how she avoided my radar for this long. But I'm reading a children's Bible, which was a finalist for the National a couple years ago, and I just love her voice. Like, it's so great. I'm going to tear through everything she's ever written as soon as I'm done with this one. I have not tried her. Oh, she's great. And I think at some point you mentioned that you haven't read Allie Smith yet either, and I love her work. Her seasonal quartet is amazing. Like, some of the best writing I've ever encountered that walks the line between surrealist and realist fiction. Allie Smith all the way. And just start at the beginning of the quartet or whatever it is. Yeah, you can start almost anywhere in the seasonal quartet, except you can't start with summer. You have to read summer last, but you can read the other three in any order. It'll still all make sense by the time you finish all four books. And I've been reading a lot of nonfiction, too. Honestly, I think I read more nonfiction than fiction these days. I have to assume it's just that phenomenon where if you do something for a living, you don't want to do it in your leisure time, you know? Like, I write fiction for a living, so I am rarely in the mood to think about fiction outside of my working hours. Do you have a certain, um, like, type of nonfiction? I mean, is, are you, is it memoir? Is it prescriptive how-to? Like, what sort of nonfiction do you like? Oh, I definitely gravitate toward the stuff that's got a strong narrative element in it, like Michael Pollan and Mary Roach and Timothy Egan, that kind of thing. I'm still into stories and storytelling. I just have more fun with it when it's not the kind of storytelling I do for a living. Um, I thought of something that I want to talk about. Yeah, lay it on me. Publishing in the 90s and how that's when I got into my career and how fucked up it was. Oh my God, spill this tea all over my podcast right now, please. Oh my God. No, it was like, it was opposite land in that, like, you know, how now nobody interns without getting paid and that like, you know, there's all of this formality around it. Like back when I started interning in 93 in New York, it was just like, 
you could just be anybody off the street and an editor would be like, yeah, sure, you can come work for me. And I worked for free for a full year and got college credit to do it. And what, like, that just does not happen anymore. And so I think of these poor people who are like taking these salaries of, ooh, wow, like, now I'm making $48,000 a year, entry level. Like part of me is like, oh my God, like it's kind of great that it's been formalized and you are getting paid. But then at the other side, like nobody has a chance anymore because it's so hard to get into publishing. But back in the 90s, it was just like a weird free for all. Okay, I have to hear the story of how you got your internship then. So I was, um, I moved, so I went to the Evergreen State College here in Olympia. And um, so I kind of went from like the whole like, you know, riot girl, like I was never, I was always on the periphery of the riot girl thing because I was too like, yeah, I didn't shave my legs. And yeah, I was like a feminist, but I was like very timid. So when I went to New York, and I will admit this, I did not know that Manhattan was an island. I just like, I was, I just got on, I had a bake sale to earn enough money to get a plane ticket to go to New York to take this internship because I had written this editor a letter. He was Gordon Lish, the editor of um, The Quarterly. And it was just a, a, a lit mag that I admired. And so I wrote him a letter and I sent it in the mail, snail mail, because this is before email. Um, and he wrote me back a letter well, no, no, no. First he called me. I was living in this cooperative house in Olympia called the ABC House, the Alexander Berkman Collective. So there were seven of us that lived in this house. Yeah, that sounds like a very Evergreen State College Olympia scenario. And we had a spiral notebook by the phone, one phone line. And I came home one day and there was this message saying, Jody Gordon Lish called, here's his phone number. And so I call him back and he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if you want to come out here and meet me, um, we can see if we can work together. And I was like, okay. And so I'm 22 and I have zero dollars. I'm working at a pizza place to earn money. And um, so I have a bake sale. All of my um, classmates were super stoked for me. So we have a bake sale. I make like the $280 it takes to get a plane ticket out there. I go meet him and I sit down at this bar with this weird man. And I'm like, I am from the suburbs and I don't know anything about anything. And he says, yeah, come work for me. And so two months later, I show up. And I just like, I didn't, I lived in a, um, it was like one of those residential hotels. It's now the Hudson Hotel. Like they've revamped it and made it super swanky, but it was on 57th and 9th. And I moved into a double room. So I had two twin beds, two desks, a microwave, and then that was it. And so I did like do my dishes in the bathroom sink. Anyway, so I show up there and I didn't know anything about anything. And I... Like, I don't know why he kept me on for so long because I contributed nothing. I just sat there dumbly in his office taking, because he had terrible handwriting. So I would, um, I would write his letters for him with my own terrible handwriting. It was just like, but anyway, I'm, all of this to say, it's like, that would never happen. It would never happen now, not in a million years. And like, what did his, what did his, what did the other what did his colleagues think when they just like walked by and they just saw this like girl sitting on the sofa in his office taking notes? I mean, it was so weird. It's so 90s though. Like that is the kind of thing that could only be considered appropriate and feasible in the 80s or 90s. And I love this story. Oh my God, you had a bake sale to get out to New York. Jody. you should write a memoir about this. Wait, since you weren't being paid, did you have another job while you were in New York? I waitressed at night. Oh my God, that is hard work. Yeah, yeah. And then when he got fired, so he got fired, he was, um, he was notorious for, uh, 
just feeling like books should not be about commerce, that books were just, it was an expression. And so he was famous for acquiring books that did not sell, but he had, he had, he was so legendary because he was Captain Fiction at Esquire magazine back in the seventies. And he was like Raymond Carver's editor. Wait, he edited Raymond Carver. So he was the guy that just like slashed and burned everything. Um, and he was famous for his, what I got for working for him for free was college credit. And then I um, got to take his writing classes where, you know, he would have these writing courses that he would teach privately. And it was $1,200. Um, and I got to go for free and it, he would show up to somebody's apartment. And this one um, was this woman's apartment that lived on uh, Fifth Avenue, right off of um, Park. And he would take the elevator up to her apartment and there'd be like 20 people and you'd just be like sitting on floors or um, squished under the couch or under folding chairs. And he would just lecture for six hours straight. And you were discouraged from even going to the bathroom. Like it was all him for six hours lecturing, which can you imagine like the, the energy that that takes to do that? But to sit through it when you're 22 years old and you're just like, what have I done? I just did. I was just like, I, I, I don't like, it's so weird. It was such an amazing opportunity. And I learned so much, not just from his writing courses, but also just like how weird the publishing world is. And like, there's so many weird, different little facets of it and hierarchies. And yeah, it was just, it was nuts, but it, and it was also like really messed up in terms of, you know, what you were expected to do, even though I kind of chafe against like how rigid everything is now with like getting into the industry and doing your internships and how everything is sort of, um, very prescriptive back then. It was just like, whoever was willing to do the most for the least got the job. And like I said, I, I'm like a workhorse. I'm willing to just like do whatever you need me to do. So I think that that's honestly how I got in. Wow. You seriously should write a memoir because it's like the bell jar, but with better music and worse fashion. <laughs> anyway, I'm glad you got in because you are an excellent editor and working with you has definitely made my writing better. And you particularly did a great job with the first round of edits on October on the Earth. Oh my God. I know that manuscript was in rough shape when I turned it in. Why do you think it was so, that particular book was so hard for you? Uh, depression. <laughs> Severe depression from the best book I've ever written, Flopping. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, you're fresh off of that. Uh-huh. And I wrote it while I was in the middle of moving to Canada. I'm sure that didn't help. But, yeah, I know that book needed a ton of work by the time I turned it in. It was not my finest, for sure. No, maybe you blew my mind because I, I sent you the dev edit and I said, well, could you try it? And I had some suggestions. And... Like within three weeks, you'd rewritten the whole damn thing. Yeah, well, what can I say? I'm professional. <laughs> no, I treat this like my job because it is. So, you know, when I have some work to do, I just buckle down and do the work. No, you are, you're a dream author to work with because <laughs> I've worked with um, people who do not like to be edited and that can be really difficult. Yeah, I've met a lot of authors who really chafe at the editorial process. And in some ways I get it, but like... We all need fresh eyes on our work because really we become blind to its flaws. Like literally typos. You can read an obvious typo a million times in your own manuscript and you will never see it. Like it will not jump out at you as a typo because you know what that line is supposed to say. So it doesn't even register on your brain that that's not what it says. We need editors or at least beta readers to point this stuff out. It makes your work better to have somebody else edit you. 
I think for a lot of writers, it's a fear that an editor will somehow force them to change important aspects of the character of their work. But editors can't make you do anything. Like, they can be very persuasive sometimes. They can lead you to make poor decisions about your manuscript sometimes, but it's always the author's decision what edits to keep and what edits to discard. No, no, no. And I'm here, I am here to back you up 100%. And like, I, that, I, I never want an author to feel that um, an editor, myself as an editor, has any skin in the game in terms of putting my own personal view or personal voice into a manuscript. I think, and I would say like, if you feel like an editor is doing that, break up with them or just politely say, you know, this is not you, you have, I never want an author to feel bullied. And there are times where it's just like, you know, you have to, if you're working for a publisher, you have to say like, this is our house style. I'm sorry. This is what we're doing. But if it's, you know, if it's one of those um, subjective things, like it's, I have no business changing your voice. No, for sure. I recently had an editorial experience where a copy editor was just swapping in synonyms because I guess she didn't like my word choices. And I very pointedly went through the manuscript and changed every single one of those synonyms back to the original wording because it was a voice issue. It was a very voicey book. And I had chosen those words for very specific reasons. And when I saw that she'd replaced them all with like her own preferences, I was just like, excuse me, who the fuck are you? Like, I'm the author, buddy, not you. But despite that experience, I just want to stress again, editors are amazing and I love them and they are an integral part of my overall writing process. That initial reaction a good editor can give you can tell you so much about whether you're even on the right track with a piece or not.
Beethoven, as in Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter, it is important to understand the character of a whole community of people, a people amongst whom religion and law were almost identical, so that the mildest and the severest acts alike were made venerable and awful. Here we have a setting and characters for a grim story of puritanical morality. So what happened to Lori, the woman I met at the conference? I did see her a few more times, though we never really got a chance to talk again. We'd pass each other on an escalator, she going up and I going down, or I'd wave at her from across the conference room, but that was pretty much that. However, on one of the nights during the big book signing event, another author came up to the table where I was signing my books and he proudly flipped around his name tag and showed it to me. He'd written on the back, I will either find a way or make one. It was the English translation of the Latin slogan I'd written on the back of Laurie's tag. In other novels, such as Cooper's The Deerslayer, one central character is the key to the story. And the more I mingled at this conference, the more I saw these words, either in English or Latin, appearing on the backs of people's name tags. See, the lanyards never do a great job of keeping the front of your tag facing out, so I saw a lot of the backs of name tags, and as the conference went on, I'd estimate that maybe a quarter of the attendees had, at some point, encountered Lori or someone she had encountered, had heard the story of how she got that slogan scribbled onto the back of her tag, and they'd all started adopting the slogan as theirs, too. Ot inveniam viam ot faciam. I will either find a way or make one. Thus, by picturing the characters in the setting, and with events happening to them, we begin to understand these characters. We begin to know them more intimately than we know persons we see every day. It's the kind of attitude you have to cultivate in publishing if you hope to make a living at it, or if you hope to not lose your sanity, which I've certainly been on the brink of doing several times myself. There's an entire corporate structure out there that's financially invested in keeping you, as an artist, harnessed to the idea of your own powerlessness. But you are not powerless. You are a creator of worlds. You can choose to work within their model, and you can choose not to. You can choose to do both, as I've done, under my own terms. There is not one road to your goal, no matter how hard other people work to convince you that there is. So it is we approach novels. Finding out about the author, imagining the setting, meeting the characters, and picturing them. This takes time, and most novels are not read all at once. When we stop, we should think back over what we have read before we put the book aside. I'm proud of a lot of things that happened at that conference. I'm really excited about some things that happened there too, like I convinced my publisher to let me do a historical novel about the Roswell UFO crash, and it was surprisingly easy. And something else happened that's maybe one of the best things that has ever happened to me and that I am so excited and hopeful about, but I can't tell you about it until contracts are signed, and I don't think that'll happen until we are well into season two, or season three. What season comes next? Season three. But a lot of really, really good things happened at this conference that made me so grateful to be who I am with the highly improbable, odds-defying career I've had. But by far the best thing that happened was seeing that message spread quietly from person to person on the backs of name tags, and knowing that I was able to inspire so many other writers not to remain as passive supplicants at the foot of this corporate monolith, but to go out and choose their path, that was huge. That was really a special experience that I will think about and treasure for the rest of my life. 
And I want you to know it too. I want you to hear this. Whatever motivates you, whatever you dream of, whether it's writing or something else, it's your hand on the helm. You are the master of your sea. And if the path to your goal is not apparent to you, then get out there and hunt until you find it. And if you can't find the path, then blaze it yourself. Straight through the wilderness of the impossible, until you reach whatever your heart most desires. That's why you're here. That's what living is for. is it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. My guest was Jody Warshaw, truly one of the best editors around, and if you're looking for a great freelance developmental editor, you can find her website at jwedits.net. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review, since that corrects the algorithm's typos and helps me find more curious weirdos like you. If you want more stuff from the inside of my head, check out my book, The Prophet's Wife, because it's the best thing I've ever made, and I really wanted to find the people who will appreciate it. Sound collage components came from the following YouTube channels. What could go wrong? Our featured music was Paperback Writer, written by the Beatles, and covered by Accidental Charm, with additional music by Silverman Sound Studios. Also featuring Telstar by The Tornadoes, licensed through Lick.com, and Run in the Mardi Gras by Boko, used with permission of Big Crown Records. If you want more info about this podcast, including socials and ways to contact me, visit futuresaintpod.com. I'm Libby Grant, and until next time, do good magic and make good worlds. Thank you.